Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Uh, so, yeah, please introduce yourself. My name is Bill Durham. I'm in the Department of Anthropology and Human Biology. I'm a human ecologist, which means I study human populations, um, their adaptations and maladaptations in the environments of our planet. So I want to expand a little bit on how you describe yourself as, as a human ecologist. Your research interests are very broad, but generally speaking, is it fair to say that you study people and cultures in the tropics and their relationship to the environment. It's a good way to put it. It sounds very esoteric, but if you break it all down, there's an awful lot of maladaptation in our world. And I'm interested in its social and cultural causes. How do you how, how is an organism that evolved to be so good in its world, so good at destroying its world? What an interesting problem that is, you know? Because we obviously evolved through Darwinian process to be a marvelous adaptation, and we've been very successful. Look at the size of the human population. There is no doubt of our success. But look now how we're using the same systems of inheritance, genes and culture, and now we're wrecking havoc all over the place. And so that's the fundamental issue. How do you understand the maladaptations of an organism that evolved to be so marvelously adapted to its niches on planet Earth? You're listening to Generation Anthropocene, and I'm your host, Leslie Chang. That was our producer, Mike Osborne, talking with Bill Durham. In that quote, Bill was honing in on one of the greatest paradoxes of the Anthropocene. On the one hand, humans are an extremely successful organism. And yet, here we are, destroying the life support systems of our planet. 
Bill has worked in the tropics for decades, and one of the places that he's seen this play out is Rondonia. Rondonia is a state in Brazil, and in the 1980s, huge areas of ancient rainforest in Rondonia were clear-cut. The feedbacks and cascade of events that happened during this so-called decade of destruction is an incredible Anthropocene tale. So today, we're dedicating our whole episode to Bill's telling of it. Here again is Mike Osborne. The story of Rondonia begins in the late 70s. Around this time, Brazil's agricultural system was undergoing modernization. Technologies were replacing farm workers. And suddenly, tens of thousands of Brazilians were out of work. Pressure was mounting on the Brazilian government to take action. And so the displaced labor became a, a social issue in Brazil. They formed a, you know, a, a landless party and began clamoring for land reform and changes in land laws and so on. Well, the government of Brazil was not quite ready to undertake a land reform, so they thought, well, what else could we do? And they had tried several colonization efforts of the Amazon. Here you have this area that's the largest piece of unbroken tropical rainforest left in the Americas, and it's the center of your country. It's not incorporated in the national economy. It's not being very productive. And Brazil saw this as a potential solution. This might be a way that they could um, provide, without a land reform, provide a decent new start for people. And, you know, like the expression goes, it's not much skin off their back. Um, who lives out there? Well, there are indigenous people who live out there, but they live at low densities. Surely um, settlers could be accommodated uh, especially if we provide for uh, forest conservation measures and maybe even protect uh, some territories belonging to indigenous people. There were good intentions. There were. Brazil asked the World Bank for money to support the project. It was clear to the World Bank that Brazil was going to go ahead with or without their help. The World Bank thought that maybe if they were involved, they could provide oversight make sure Brazil respected the native ecosystems and indigenous people. So the World Bank went along with this and gave them $434 million in 1981. And the World Bank insisted that 3% of the money be used for health measures and for the protection of natural reserves and indigenous reserves. Most of the $434 million went to infrastructure, roads, um, the layout of communities, planned settlements, the allocation of lots. And on radio and television, they offered this uh, land without people to people without land. I mean, that was one of the advertisements. Well, they had planned well, somewhere between 75 and 100,000 people. What happened instead was that a million people showed up. That's just 10 to 1. But 10 to 1 out in the middle of the closed canopy tropical rainforest where you're not sure exactly how productive the soils are. You're not really even sure how the hydrologic cycle works. You're not sure what system of cropping and rotation would approach sustainability. And you even, for a moment, think you might be able to grow coffee in this place. The settlers arrived hoping that they would have their cafezal, that they would have a place to plant coffee in the lowland tropical rainforest below 500 meters, coffee doesn't grow. And they tried and they tried and then they moved on to other crops. And in short, a massive unfortunate experiment was tried on a million people. Despite the fact that there were now 10 times too many people, no one in charge thought to revise the game plan. 
And it turns out that this plan had some problems of its own. The roads were opened, the roads were quickly paved, and people followed the roads, people extended the roads. Then they put secondary roads at right angles and then tertiary roads at right angles. Well, if you imagine the scene, it looks a bit like, uh, let's call the fishbone pattern. The Brazilian Institute for Colonization planned that the secondary and tertiary roads should be separated by something like four kilometers and that parcels were being given to people that were two kilometers, 2,000 meters deep. The idea was that the settlers would use the front part of their plots near the road to grow their crops and keep the rainforest in the back 40 undeveloped and in reserve. As long as the soil stayed healthy and crops were reliable, this might have been sustainable. It turns out, though, that the soil use was never tested for the crops that were being grown, a lot of which were manioc and some pineapple and so on, some pretty typical tropical crops. But the soil, with the rainfall in the area and with the slash and burn, the shifting cultivation system, the soil system was not able to support any kind of intensive cropping. And so this led then to a sequential cycle of deforestation within one's own parcel. It turned out that people needed that forest reserve in the back 40. They needed it for actual production within a few years, which put people back into the two-kilometer depth of their field. But imagine now they're coming from the other side with this problem as well. In other words, these roads are parallel, and so they're coming in from road A in the direction of road B, and they're coming in from road B in the direction of road A. The unfortunate consequence was the clear-cutting. It's as if the distance between the roads was designed. Obviously, they designed it so there would be a space, a forested space in the middle. But the way it played out with the soil was that all that was needed to maintain agriculture. And so there were places, the parts of Rondonia, where 50, 60, 70 percent of all the tree cover was cleared. Another issue was that no one had bothered to test the soils before the settlers showed up. Years later, after the fact, the World Bank finally did conduct a soil survey, and it turned out that only 14% of the area was suitable for growing crops. As the farmers struggled to grow food, the problems in the area grew even bigger. Well, when you've run out of forest to cut, to slash and burn... Um, your production begins to sag, what are you going to do? You begin to look for ways to sell and move on, which spawned a whole nother wave farther down the roads, farther away from Brazilian Route 364, more into the forest, and it resulted in a second wave of cattle coming in, buying up the cleared parcels that were now completely cleared. They made beautiful ranch lands. So then you had ranchers coming in, and that was on a big scale. And then there were the indigenous people who had been living in this area long before the settlers arrived. It's true it wasn't densely settled or densely utilized, but one really significant detail was lost on the Brazilian and World Bank planners, apparently lost. They were all headhunters by tradition. Can you imagine anything more ludicrous than bringing a million naive people from other parts of Brazil into the Amazon, colonizing them very quickly, putting out roads, moving them out into the forest in a place where people not only achieved stature, not only achieved prestige and importance in society by taking heads, but they actually believed that headhunting was important to their subsistence in order to be able to 
uh, harvest the game animals, they needed to appease the spirit protectors by presenting human heads. What you would think in this day and age that a government and a World Bank and the United States government standing behind the World Bank, we funded about a fifth of the World Bank's budget at this time, you'd think, you'd say, well, tell me about the indigenous people. What do we know about them? What do they need out of this environment? Instead, it was done the other way around. Let's bring everybody in, let the indigenous people sink or swim. And what happened, therefore, was again an experiment of tragic dimension. Thousands of colonists were killed by indigenous people, protecting themselves, protecting their livelihoods, and also thinking that this was the way they would get prestige as well as protect themselves and defend their food supply. Okay, so we have a hugely overpopulated settlement where poor land planning is leading to massive deforestation, and a bloodbath is developing between colonists and indigenous headhunters. And then came malaria. At no time in human history has anyone been so bold as to bring a million of what we call susceptibles, people previously unexposed to Plasmodium falciparum malaria, completely unexposed, completely susceptible. It's almost like a thought experiment in an epidemiology class. Imagine you could, you know, if you want to see the, the worst possible outbreak, what would you do? Well, you might bring a large number of people into a place where they'd not been exposed before. And what, what might they do? Well, imagine that they modify the habitat in a way that's really good for the disease. And not just for the disease, the disease vector. This relates to the fishbone pattern. Here's why. As you're coming in with your million settlers and they're getting started, each one has been given this rectangular parcel that we've already described going 2,000 uh, 2, meters back. And so the first thing you do is you start to clear your area and, and using most techniques they'll end up with a kind of a square interface that is they'll end up with a, a forest edge and as you clear more the forest edge moves and it may move backwards and it may move up against your neighbor's field and you have an edge there and so on. What's really tragic is that the mosquito that vectors malaria in this part of the Amazon is a forest fringe species. That is to say it lives in the world between bright sunlight and deep forest. It lives at edges. So where does it occur in nature? Along streams where you have a natural edge. You have a fringe along the stream. And it lives in places where the water is uh, not as entirely acidic as it often is. It has to be still water and not too acidic. Well, look what happened. You brought out a million people, all of whom starts to create fringe. They all start to slash and burn, which means from the burn comes all the ash. The ash helps to neutralize the acidic conditions of the soil, helps to neutralize the water that it begins to collect. Why is the water collecting? Well, you've got two and three meters of rain falling, and you've got very little evapotranspiration. So you've got puddles all over the place. Now the acidity is diluted because there was ash all over the surface because you just burned down this field, which makes it more conducive to the mosquito. So you're doing a pretty good job of setting up a mosquito incubator if, you know, you're, and a malaria incubator if you're making the temperature warmer so the, the malaria develops faster inside the mosquito and you've created perfect conditions for the mosquitoes to replicate. All we need to do is to have that mosquito live long enough to bite another person. You can probably see where this is going. Perfect mosquito breeding and malaria conditions combined with a million people living densely together, and you get an unprecedented outbreak of malaria. 
30 to 40 percent of the million people who migrated to Rondonia reported malaria. How many other people didn't even report? How many people were too sick to go to the hospital? How many people said, this is just a fever, it too will pass? We have no idea how many people in 1988 really had malaria. And that's speaking of those who had access to health posts. The indigenous community suffered uh, this outbreak of malaria, as well as measles, mumps, uh, chicken pox, and other things brought in from the outside. There are villages where fewer than 40% of the adults survived, indigenous villages where fewer than 40% of the adults survived, the combination onslaught of losing your land, pulling back into the forest, and then being exposed to these diseases. So add it all together. Massive deforestation, a pattern of fishbone deforestation designed to really nearly clear-cut massive areas of the forest, an incubation experiment with malaria and the experiment of taking away what were the traditional headhunting lands of 30-some indigenous groups. And you have a recipe for a colossal disaster, and that's basically what Rondonia was. The World Bank was incredibly embarrassed by the whole Rondonia fiasco, and since then has made efforts to fund development of more sustainable agroforestry in the Amazon. Of course, deforestation of the Amazonian rainforest continues to this day. But despite ongoing problems, Bill is cautiously optimistic about the future. The area today, I'm happy to say, is uh, busily reforesting, uh, experiments with agroforestry, and uh, even experiments with the carbon market. Um, some very interesting progress has been made where there are payment for ecosystem services and payment for carbon sequestration involving even the indigenous inhabitants of Rondonia. What, what's interesting to me about all of this is that, um, you know, if you really sit back in your armchair and think about it, um, the adaptation that we're converging on in Rondonia today doesn't have the head hunting, doesn't have the captive taking, but it has the agroforestry system that the indigenous people enjoyed on that landscape for a long time. And what's really interesting about it is we went through this whole spasm of disaster and destruction to come back to realize that what's sustainable in this area is something not that different from what the indigenous people had enjoyed. So again, you know, what do I take away from this? Well, gosh, before we rush in with all our big, bright ideas from the outside. Why don't we go in and see what's working there now? So I, uh, one of the takeaways is not to dismiss traditional ecological knowledge, but to build on it. I'm not saying that the solutions that the genetic and cultural system brought about in the original adaptation were optimized. Um, I'm just saying that they probably have some knowledge in them that we ought to capture before we just completely wreck havoc over that same landscape. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Next time on the podcast... Fire season is extending, and that's something, say, over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. And climate is a huge factor but it's also land use and land use history. It's also a result of how we've managed fire in our public wildlands. That's next time on Generation Anthropocene. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Trayer, and me, Leslie Chang. 
Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Say the word issue for me. Issue. Good. Another issue. That's funny that you... Okay. Is that, what? Am I supposed to read something into that? <laughs> say issues. <laughs> All right. I have yeah, issues. <laughs> just, I want you to just say a sentence for me. I have issues. I just It's a tongue twister. <laughs> Ten times fast, please. Yeah, Go I, ahead. Yeah, I have issues. I have issues. I have issues. Yeah, it does get caught in the tongue. <laughs> All right.